Let's pray and let's get going here. Lord, good to hear what you have to say this morning. Let your word teach. We just listen. Let your spirit lead, guide, and direct. And I just want to pray for this time of food and fellowship after church. That would be fellowship for you. We could just have godly conversations, encouraging one another, and just praising you for who you are and what you do. We say thank you in your name. Amen. Proverbs 13. Now, if you've been involved with our study in the book of Proverbs before, you know I have a little introduction that I'd like to share because sometimes there's people that haven't been here, I haven't heard this before. The key theme in the book of Proverbs is the idea of wisdom. Wisdom is God's way of thinking. And then you want to get knowledge and understanding, which is God's way of doing it and God's way of applying it. So when you have wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, you now have God's way of thinking, God's way of doing it, and God's way of applying it. You throw in the fear of the Lord in there as the foundation, and you're set then. Now, the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs has laid the foundation of what wisdom is. And then starting in chapter 10, it started what we commonly refer to as the Proverbs. Short, profound truths. Just a sentence or two long. Pretty easy to understand, but once you get into it, you see the depth of what they're saying. This is considered a book of Hebrew poetry. And the way the Hebrew poetry works is they usually do a pro and a con, a positive and a negative to contrast it. A good example is Proverbs 13.1. A wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. You see the pro, the positive. Wise son heeds instruction. Then you see the con, the negative. Scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And that's how a lot of the Proverbs work. The way we're going to teach Proverbs chapter 13 here is this. We kind of find a foundational verse for the chapter. And then we use that verse to build off of all the other verses in the chapter. We may not exactly go verses 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 in order. But we have that foundational verse. And our foundational verse happens to be Proverbs 13, 1. A wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. This is an ongoing theme in the book of Proverbs. Listening to instruction. Taking the time to hear, listen, and apply it. Not just show up, not just mark your verse, but to really stop and say, I'm going to take this, go home, and put this into a practice. You guys have had children at home, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That the child could be looking at you, making eye contact with you, and you are telling them what to do, and you realize they are not listening in any way whatsoever. I think sometimes the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees you in your Sunday best with your Bible open, with your colored pen and all these other things taking notes and he says, they're not listening. We need to hear it and then we need to apply it. Lord, give us ears to hear to listen to instruction. The opposite of that, being a scoffer. You do not want to be a scoffer. We did a huge study on what a scoffer is that was back in Proverbs chapter 9, and I encourage you to go online, listen to it, or get a copy of the CD. A scoffer is considered one of those people in the Bible that is just full of such arrogance and such pride. They will not listen to rebuke. They will not listen to correction. They are a difficult person that the Bible says there is not much hope for them. I encourage you, if you were not here for that study, to go back and listen to it. You probably work with scoffers. You may even live with the scoffer. You may even know a scoffer. They're a difficult person to be around, and so therefore, when we see that mentioned in verse 1, I want to refer back to that. So this is our foundational verse. We're going to talk today about this idea of listening to instruction versus what happens when we choose to not listen to rebuke. Not listen to rebuke. Remember what it says in the book of Hebrews. The Bible makes it clear that if you were here this morning and you're born again and saved as a child of God, God loves you enough to correct you. Hebrews makes it abundantly clear. God corrects his children. So if you are being rebuked or corrected, it's actually love from the Lord. That's how much he loves you. You have all been in Walmart before, and you've seen a little Billy over in the other aisle that you wanted to go correct. 
And you knew if you would go correct little Billy, you ended up at CCNO. So you don't go correct little Billy because little Billy is not your child. God corrects his children. And if you're here this morning being corrected, rebuked, then amen, God loves you. And he wants to see you grow and go deeper in that. I want you to think about this teaching today. If you have kids at home or grandkids or you have any type of influence over a generation coming up, how could you take these words and instruct them? If you're here this morning and you're not in that season of life, I want you to stop and realize that you have a heavenly father that is trying to teach you and instruct you now. And so these verses still apply to you whatever season that you're in. So let's talk about instruction, let's talk about rebuke, and let's talk about the wisdom of accepting this and understanding this. One of the first bits of instruction you see in this chapter is found in verse 10. By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Be well-advised. Listen to counsel and wisdom. This is an ongoing theme in Proverbs. But listen to godly wisdom and counsel. Listen to the counsel of somebody who is on fire for the Lord and born again. Don't go around to all your co-workers, friends, and family and do the classic, what do you think? No, what does the Lord think? Stick to the scripture. Stick to the truth of that. And when you are well advised, there's wisdom. The opposite of being well advised, according to verse 10, is walking in pride. You don't need any guidance. You don't need any counsel. You won't listen. And the result of that, it's going to be strife. I can remember distinctly one time doing a marriage counseling with a couple. And we're sitting down and we're going through Ephesians, the role of the husbands, love your wife as Christ, love the church. And we're talking to the wife, you know, respecting, honor, and submitting. We're talking about all these roles. And as I'm going through Ephesians and saying, this is what a biblical marriage is supposed to look like. The husband's sitting there nodding his head saying, yep, I knew that. Yep, I knew that. Yep, I knew that. I'm thinking, then why are you here? If you already know it all. Come teach Dawn and I. We'll set up an appointment with you because you got it all figured out. And the problem was there was a pride. A pride of not being willing to stop and really listen and say, do I really get this? Do I really understand this? Be willing to listen to godly, spirit-led wisdom on what the Lord is leading you to do. What other type of instruction do we have? Take a look at verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. This kind of goes with what we talked about last week back in verse 26 of chapter 12. The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. I told you this is kind of like a kindergarten verse. This is a verse that you would give your child before they get on the bus. Remember, don't play with Billy. Billy's bad. Choose your friends carefully. This idea right here of what are we supposed to do, we're supposed to make sure that we're with wise people. Listen, you can't get away from non-believers, nor should you try to get away from non-believers. You're called to be a light and a witness to them. But be careful on who you allow to influence you. Careful on who you spend your time with that's going to eventually bring you down. Because verse 20, the companion of fools will be destroyed. Choose godly friends to let that be an influence to you. And if you have the companion of fools, love them, witness to them, represent Jesus to them. Limit your time with them. Because you're there to be a light and a witness to them in all ways and all things. How are we supposed to know then this wisdom that we're supposed to walk in? What other instruction do we have? comes back to God's word. Look at verse 13. He who despises the word will be destroyed. He who fears the commandment will be rewarded. The law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Oh, I tell you, verse 13. Fear the commandment. Spend that time in the word. Don't despise the word. When you despise the word, you will be destroyed. There is a danger in knowing what the Bible says than choosing not to live it. You're despising the word. 
book of James talks about that person that, that understands the Bible, reads the Bible, but then walks away and forgets. How often do we do that? We'll sit in a teaching, we'll sit in a message, we'll read a devotional, we'll say, oh, that's really good, and then five minutes later, it's like it never even happened. Don't despise the word. Fear the commandment of God, and you will be rewarded. God says, you take the time and energy to invest in this, it will come back to bless you. There's no doubt about it. I think of Timothy, Paul's protege. And in one of the letters to Timothy, Paul talks about Timothy's um, generations before him, Lois and Eunice, his mother and his grandmother. Timothy came from this line of women that loved the Lord. What a blessing to come from a line of people that do not despise the word. And you will be rewarded then for being in the word and you will be blessed by it. Because look at 14. The law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. How simple is this? If I read the Bible, apply the Bible, live the Bible, I'll stay away from a lot of trouble. It's just that straightforward. It's when I choose to not live the Bible, apply the Bible, I get myself into death. Death in relationships, death in life, death spiritually, death emotionally, because I'm not doing what the Lord says. I want to be rewarded, and I'm rewarded by fearing the commandment of God and then applying it. And then once I take that, I get wisdom and knowledge. Look at verse 15. Good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. Good understanding, verse 15, gains favor. The way of the unfaithful is hard. That is so simple. And that's what's so hard to grasp sometimes. The way of the unfaithful is hard. If you choose to go out and live a life that is unfaithful to the Lord and unfaithful to the word, it's going to be hard. It just is. So why not learn now to do it right biblically and live it? And I look at these people that have a very difficult life, a very difficult marriage, very difficult family situations. The way of the unfaithful is hard. Let's get our foundation back on the Lord. Let's be where Christ wants us to be. And guess what? Good understanding gains favor. But to go down the path of unfaithfulness, it's going to make life hard. We need to learn that. Now, you can either learn that easy or you can learn that hard. You can either learn the hard way that the way of the unfaithful is hard, and I hope you learn your lesson after a few bumps and bruises. Or you could learn right now that verse 13, he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. You can walk out of this room here right now saying, okay, I'm going to go the unfaithful way and make life hard. Or you can stop and say, I fear the commandment of God and I'm going to do what's right and be rewarded. We got some people coming to stay with us here in a couple weeks and our basement needs to be put in order. So I went to the boys and I said, hey, we're going to do a couple things here. I said, these people are coming here. They're going to be here on a Monday. So that means um, by Sunday, the basement needs to be put in order. Now, I'm giving you a week, week and a half forewarning on this, boys. You can go down right now and start working on the basement, and your diligence will be rewarded. Because I believe in that. I believe what the Bible says, that diligence is rewarded, and you can go down right now and work diligently, work hard, and be rewarded for that. Or, if you choose to do nothing, the day before they get here, when we get home from church, I will make you go down, and I will make you work diligently, and you will not be rewarded. But it will still get done. And I may have been biblically wrong for this, but I quoted in the verse out of Philippians where it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I said, people in heaven know he's Lord. The people in hell know he's Lord. I said, and they're still in hell. I said, I'm going to make you clean that basement. So do it now in diligence and be rewarded rather than learning the hard way. 
I'm telling you right now, if you know your life, your marriage, your spiritual walk is not where it's supposed to be, then in diligence now, fear the commandment of God and don't learn the hard way. It's not worth it. The unfaithful way is hard. You want, verse 15 and 16, understanding and knowledge. God's way of doing it, God's way of applying it. Put it into practice and be blessed. Be blessed. Now, right here, the message kind of takes two paths. So we're going to hit the one path real quick and kind of jump back on this idea of instruction. That's kind of the general theme here. But at this point, we've kind of mentioned this idea of unfaithful and the way is hard, and we've mentioned discipline. Jump down, if you will, to verse 24. He who spares his rod hates his son. He who loves him disciplines him promptly. Now, that verse causes a lot of problems for people, a lot of problems. Let's talk about what that verse is saying. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. I need to love my children enough to discipline them. Just like God loves me to discipline me. I've already told you about what it says in Hebrews. God disciplines his children. Now, here's the problem. When the idea of discipline comes up, what we think of. And most of the time when I ever bring up the idea of discipline, people have a misunderstanding of what biblical discipline looks like. I've shared with you before, Dawn and I are foster parents, and the foster care has very, very strict rules on what is allowed for discipline, not discipline, etc. And we're very limited on the type of discipline we're allowed to do, which to me makes it very difficult because I see a verse like verse 24, and I see God's way of doing it, and God's way works. Now here, what it is, what is biblical discipline? Biblical discipline is lovingly, Firmly, gently, and under control. Now, it's lovingly, firmly, gently, and under control. You may stop and say, well, that doesn't sound very gentle. The Bible said, let your gentleness be known to all men. And it's under control, so therefore it's gentle. Biblical discipline is not intimidation. Biblical discipline is not brute force. That's not what it is. It is done lovingly, firmly, gently, and under control. Now, I'm not saying I got this figured out, but one thing I try to tell the boys at home is this. Listen, I don't want to have to raise my voice. I will raise my voice. There's 10 of us living in the house. Sometimes I have to be louder than everybody, okay? So sometimes I need to be a little louder to get your attention. There's times, though, if I see a threat and the threat is going to happen and I need to be loud to get everybody's attention, then I will do it. But if my general form of discipline is to do this barking and yelling, yeah, that ain't going to work. They'll grow old after a while. Or if my, my form of discipline is to do this really weird, demonic, guttural voice that we do as parents, yeah, that's not biblical either. Lovingly, firmly, gently, and under control. I see a lot of people try to do biblical discipline via intimidation and brute force. That's not of God. I remember one time doing uh, counseling with a family, and they had a couple young kids right around three years old or something like that. And there was a lot of issues going on, a lot of issues. And so they had the kids in the office, the mom and dad were in the office, and the kids started acting up getting a little out of control. Dad stood up, undoes his belt right in front of me. He says, do you want, to me, you want me to whip you right in front of the pastor? I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> you know, I'm a mandated reporter. Please, no, I don't want to have to do all this type of stuff. No. I learned right there that this guy's idea of discipline is brute force intimidation. That ain't going to work. You can scare the kid for a while, but the point is I'm supposed to train them in the Lord train them. Dawn had this book that she read one time uh, by a man, I believe his name was Paul Tripp, was Shepherding a Child's Heart. 
And it was the idea of train them in Christ. Train them under that authority of who the Lord is so that they obey that way. Because the idea of brute force intimidation, it will work for a while, but eventually it doesn't. Lovingly, firmly, gently, under control. Don't be afraid to do exactly what verse 24 says. And discipline them promptly. Promptly. That there's a time. I have seen the wrong. I have corrected the wrong. The wrong is taken care of. We move on. I, I love that. And if anybody ever comes and wants to have any type of parenting advice, etc., I'm going to pass you right off to Richard and Betsy. Because Richard and Betsy are the ones that I took their child training classes when I did them out here. And I learned so much from them. So much from them. And one of the things that Richard always taught was the idea of discipline. Just this verse. Let it be done promptly. Promptly. Like I said, with, with foster care, there's, there's things we're not allowed to do. And so one of the things that, that we do... Um, have the access to is to do a little bit of a, of a timeout. And you know, and I tell you, when you hear a timeout like that, it's basically weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth for I don't know how long. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Verse 24, I don't see that being promptly. I like getting it done, getting it over, build the relationship, and let's move on. I love you. God loves you. You screwed up, but God loves you. Let's move on here. And I see it once again. I see it out in, in the world. Uh, you, you've seen it Walmart. I know, I always use Walmart as an example. I'm there a lot. But, you know, Walmart. You're seeing the, the little Billy over there in the other aisle. And then Billy is doing something completely, utterly wrong. And you hear the mom say, Billy, get over here. Billy doesn't listen. Billy, get over here. Doesn't listen. The voice gets louder. The voice gets that demonic guttural. Billy's not listening. And finally we do this, the count. Billy, one, two. What are we training them? You have three seconds to sin. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, can you imagine going into a bank and, hey, I'm going to rob the bank. James, don't you rob the bank. I'm going to rob the bank. James, don't. James, one, two. So I have three seconds to grab as much money as I can to get out of the bank, and whatever I get is mine. No, I tell you guys, look at verse 24. He who spares his rod hates his son. He who loves him disciplines him promptly. And I just encourage you to really pray over that and see that. And I know there's many layers to that and many questions that come out of it. And I highly encourage you, Richard and Betsy, I trust emphatically on this. And remember, discipline is lovingly, firmly, gently, under control, not with intimidation, not with brute force. And I believe that there's a blessing in that. And I encourage you with that. Now, moving on, though, taking now the other direction here about instruction. We need to talk about this blessing of what happens when we do follow that instruction. Take a look at verse 11. Wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished. He who gathers by labor will increase. Now, that's an interesting idea there. We're seeing this labor, teaching work. He who gathers by labor will increase. For some reason in this world, we always want get rich quick. And if you're like me, if I'm ever here at the office and I'm listening to a message or I'm listening to some worship or something on YouTube or something like that, there's the craziest ads before that. And if I would just do what those ads say, I would be in the best physical shape I could ever imagine, and I'd be so wealthy I wouldn't even know what to do with it. And they make it sound so easy. That's one of these little things that the world likes to throw out you is this get rich quick. You see the Bible in verse 11, he who gathers by labor labor will increase now let's talk about this idea because we now the object of money comes up take a look at verse 23 much food is in the fallow ground of the poor and for lack of justice there is waste and let's go one more with this take a look at verse 4 the soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich see i'm liking this verse 11 i have labor and it will increase verse 4 the soul of the diligent man will be made rich it said the key word there verse 4 is rich verse 3 much food is in the ground of the poor so i'm going to go out and i'm going to work hard 
and I'm going to work so hard, I'm going to make so much money, I'm going to gain so much stuff, and I'll have everything I could ever want. And then you go to Luke 12, and then you die. As it says in Luke 12, your soul is required of you. Let's really break these verses down. Verse 11, dishonesty will never bless you. Now you may say, you know what? That's not necessarily true. I've seen people, but what's your definition of blessed? In God's economy, dishonesty is never blessed. Laboring. So you labor and you are blessed. You increase. Verse uh, 23, much food is in the fallow ground of the poor, and for the lack of justice there is waste. There is, there is food in that ground. Go out there, work hard for it, be blessed by it. And verse 4, once again, the key word, the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. But did you catch what's made rich in verse 4? Your soul. Your soul's made rich. That's not talking possessions necessarily. You're made rich, diligent, spiritually. Joy, peace, love, self-control, goodness, faithfulness, all the fruits of the Spirit. See, what happens is people see this and they say, oh, I want wealth, health, and happiness. No, I want my soul to be made rich because that's all that matters. Because take a look at verse 4. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. I know people that desire. They want things to be different in their life. They say they want to make changes, they whatever, but they're lazy about it. They're not putting any time, energy, and effort to their walk with the Lord. And then they wonder why things stay the same. Because we just read the way of the unfaithful is hard. Listen, do you want your soul to be rich in the Lord? Do you want the fruits of the Spirit of Galatians 5, and 23? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Then I tell you, look at verse 4 and say, Lord, I want my soul to be diligent in you. I'm going to take that time to read and pray and grow. You know, we have this day-to-day where there's an extra hour. Extra hour. I'm looking up at the clock right now, and it's 12.05. Your bodies right now are thinking, I haven't adjusted to this. We should be eating already. You have an extra hour. What are we going to do with it? Some people would have just slept in more. Some people would try to get more chores done. Some people will still go to bed tonight saying, I didn't have enough time to accomplish everything. Because why? Maybe we're not making the focus of the day to be the things of the Lord. Maybe we're making the focus of the day to be the things of us. And I look at these verses like verse 4. Lord, I want my soul to be diligent. I want my soul to be focused on you and take the time to learn and grow in you. Because if my soul is diligently seeking you, I am going to be rich in the things of the Lord. And then when I'm rich in the things of the Lord, take a look at verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. I can leave an inheritance then on. Now there is, I think, a practical thing of verse 22 of blessing uh, the generations following you. That you have worked hard and you have been able to store up and you can then help out the generation following you get a good start in life financially. That is a wonderful blessing. There's no doubt about that. But also, verse 22, there is the spiritual inheritance that you're leaving. That's an amazing thing to stop and think about, that there's a spiritual inheritance that you're working on. That means more than any type of money, any way whatsoever. We have this Bible at home. It's on top of the fridge, and in the back of the Bible, it is just every book of the Bible, it just has questions. And we got this thing that we've been doing for years with the boys. Every now and then we bring it out, and I'll just go through some of the questions in the back. And they're just the simple Bible questions, and we keep track of the score. And so we've been doing this for, for many years. But the neat thing about it is the Bible actually is my grandma Irvin's Bible. And so this is the, my boys' great-grandma Irvin's Bible, that we're actually using her Bible that I can look back on and see the notes that she took. I can see the verses that she marked. 
And it's just neat now to think, okay, here now is we're now generations following using the same Bible to grow. And I'll sometimes find a passage and say, hey, look, Grandma Irvin marked this, starred it, underlined it, circled it. Do not murder. You know, I wonder what she was thinking. No, she didn't do that. But I'm just saying, <laughs> it's just neat to see that and to think that we're talking now decades. Some of you may be sitting here and you may be saying, what's my ministry? If you got any influence over any kids coming up, you got a great inheritance you can leave them. Let them know what the Lord has done in your life. And a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. There's obviously the physical side of that, but there's also the spiritual side of that. And what an absolute blessing that is. And one of the ways that we can teach them of the spiritual inheritance and also the physical inheritance is take a look at verse 7. There is one who makes himself rich, yet has nothing, and one who makes himself poor, yet has great riches. Let's read that verse one more time. There is one who makes himself rich, yet has nothing, and one who makes himself poor, yet has great riches. I've shared with you many times before, my degree is in finance. And I look at this verse, I just wonder what would have happened back when I was in college if I would have stood up in my investing class and said to the professor, hey, I got this point I want to make. There's one who makes himself rich, yet has nothing. There's one who makes himself poor, yet has great riches. That goes completely against anything I ever was taught in college. Completely. God's economy is completely different than our economy. And you've got to remember that. God's economy is completely different. You've heard me make these points many times before. 2 Corinthians 9 makes it clear. If you are blessed with more, it's so that you can give more. The Bible makes it clear. God gives you more, not to raise your standard of living, to raise your standard of giving. And as you give more, verse 7, you make yourself poor, but then you give more. And you get more, so that way you can give more. And then as you give more, God gives you more. And it's just this amazing thing that just keeps on repeating itself. But the problem is, verse 7, there's one who makes himself rich yet has nothing. You may say, well, that's not true. I've seen rich people, they have a lot. Okay, they may have a lot of possessions. How are they doing spiritually? See, we drive by these houses, we look at these marriages, and they look cookie-cutter perfect. But what's eternity look like? That's what we're talking about, making our soul rich. That's what matters there right there. Because verse 8, the ransom of man's life is his riches, but the poor does not hear rebuke. This idea of what's your life going to be focused on? What's the whole point? Is the goal more stuff? Or is the goal the Lord? Verse 8 is a really interesting verse. The poor does not hear rebuke. A lot of people look at that verse and say that when you don't have a lot of stuff, it's not a lot of people to get worked up about you. Because you're not trying out there to win the rat race type thing. You have less to worry about. Ecclesiastes says the rich man stays up at night worrying about his stuff. Sometimes the more toys we have, the more worry we have in those toys. When the Lord stops and says, if I'm your riches, if I'm your wealth, then that's all that matters. And when you make me your wealth and you make me your riches, you will be blessed. That's a hard thing in today's economy because in today's economy, you can get whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want. Teaching delayed gain is difficult. Delayed gain. I remember years ago talking to someone, and it was about, actually it was about a camper, if I remember correctly, and just talking about prices, et cetera, and everything. And the person said, how, how does this sound? It was a whatever type of camper, real nice, real fancy, whatever. And I said, well, it sounds real good. They said it would only be X amount of dollars per month. Well, that's great. Now, in my mind, I'm already running the numbers. X amount of dollars per month, by that many months, that means for the next 50 years of my life, no. But I can have it right now. You can have it right now. See, there is this idea of delayed gain. James 1.4, let patience have its perfect work. Never rush God. 
Never rush the things of God, the plans of God. Never rush a ministry. Never rush someone's salvation. Never rush someone growing. I mean, imagine having a newborn baby. And next day you're saying, walk. Developmentally, they can't, they shouldn't. They have to go through rolling, to crawling, to walking. You just, you can't. And I think sometimes what we need to do as believers is realize that patience have its perfect work. God has patience with us to grow us and mold us. Never rush the things of God. Take a look at this idea of patience. Look at verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Have you ever had something you wanted so bad, and until it's happening, you actually you just feel sick? I still struggle with this. There'll be a situation that pops up out of church, and my first initial flushy reaction is my stomach's all in knots, and I'm all worked up about it. You would think by after walking with the Lord for 25 years and being the pastor out here for almost 20, you would think I would realize God's got it under control. But there's that initial sickness of, oh, no. And what I'm trying to teach myself and trying to learn is that initial thing happens. Okay, that's when i got to hit my knees. Lord, it's in your hands. I can't carry this burden. I can't carry this fear, this worry, this anxiety. It's making me sick. So, Lord, it's in your hands. Because when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. And then when I see it all work out, Oh, man, Lord, you're still good. You're still moving and working. If you're here this morning and there's something in your life that is not working out, it's making you sick, trust that when the desire comes, it's the tree of life. That in God's timing, it will work out and it will be blessed. Because look at verse 19. A desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. When something is accomplished in the Lord and it it impacts your soul, you note the repetition of soul here. We're trying to get us to think spiritually, eternally, not in the here and now. And I know that if I've ever done any ministry out here, and when that ministry is done, you walk away just feeling victorious. Like, yes, Lord, that's what it is. Souls hopefully were saved. Disciples actually were made. Marriages were healed. You were glorified, Lord. It's just a desire accomplished. But to fools, verse 19, to quit doing evil, it's an abomination to them. They want to keep doing evil. Now, you put all these verses together. They want to keep doing evil. Next thing you know, they wonder why their life is hard. Because the way of the unfaithful is hard when I walk in wickedness. I need to walk in righteousness. And this is how we're going to finish this up. Just follow this train of thought here with the idea of righteousness. Take a look at verse 5. A righteous man hates lying, and a wicked man is loathsome and comes to shame. Righteousness is mentioned almost every time here in Proverbs. Righteousness just means to be made right. doesn't mean you're perfect. That means you're right in the Lord. It means you do right things. And the way I'm right in the Lord comes from Corinthians where the Bible makes it clear. He, Jesus, that knew no sin became sin for us so that way we may become the righteousness of God which is in Christ Jesus. I stand before you as a sinful man, but yet in the eyes of God I am made righteous through Christ Jesus. And that's salvation. That's what it means to be born again. I am righteous in him. If I'm righteous in the Lord, verse 5, I watch my words. I hate lying. Look at verse 6. Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but the wickedness overthrows the sinner. The wickedness doesn't get me. I'm watching my words. I'm watching how I live. I'm blameless. It doesn't mean I'm perfect, but I'm living a life for the Lord. That way when people stop and say, what about this? Hopefully I can stop and say, listen, I'm living for Jesus. There's a blameless there. Jump back to 2 and 3. A man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth, but the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Look at this idea of the mouth here in 2 and 3. The fruit of your mouth, in verse 3, guarding your mouth, verse 3, opening wide your lips. We've said this a lot. Wisdom 
is knowing what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and even if to say it at all. You can tell a lot about a person by their words. Their words open up just a glimpse right into their heart, and you can see, you can see what's going on. James 1 says this about the idea of words. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. James is saying, if you think you're religious, and in a good way, in the sense of doing it right for the things of the Lord, and you can't control your tongue, then you got it all wrong. If you can't control your tongue and your words, you really have to stop and say, okay, Lord, am I really putting you first? Because our words reveal us. Take a look at this description, verse 2. A man should eat well by the fruit of his mouth. The fruit of the mouth feeds you. If you are constantly being critical and attacking people, and putting them down, and condemning them, and you're always picking on this, and this thing, and that thing, whatever, that's going to eventually affect you. You're taking the joy out of the room. You're taking the joy out of people. People aren't going to want to be around you, and you're not going to have any joy in life, because why? You're not eating by the fruit of your mouth. You're constantly critical and complaining. That's why we want to walk in joy, and in love, and in peace. Guard your mouth, verse 3. Watch what you say. Don't open wide your lips. That means you got your lips open all the way. You talk too much. Keep it shut. I think of what it says in the book of James. Swift to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to wrath. We live in an age in a society today where you just get online and everybody can hear and know your opinion. And we think that everybody needs to know our opinion. Let them know God's opinion. If you're going to speak, speak words. Speak words of life from the Bible. Speak the truth of the Bible. But just be careful of how you allow your words to come across. Because we're called to be a messenger. Take a look here as we get ready to finish up. Verse 17. A wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful ambassador brings help. You are called to be a messenger and ambassador for Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that he's an ambassador for Christ. Think about what an ambassador does. Ambassador is the representative of a country to represent itself in another country. Philippians says that I am a citizen of heaven. Now, we forget this, especially when we just vote here in a couple of days. And I'm not saying don't go out and vote. You have been given that privilege, that liberty. Go out and represent God at the ballot box. But I tell you this, you are a citizen of heaven. And as a citizen of heaven, the Lord has said, you are now my ambassador. You represent Jesus on this earth. You are a messenger, and I think we forget this. Because we think that it's my life and I represent what I want to represent and I do what I want to do. No, I am a messenger and I am a faithful ambassador. And when I represent Jesus Christ properly, according to verse 17, it brings health, spiritual health. I just feel better about my life in the day because I'm representing the things of the Lord. When I'm a wicked messenger in verse 17, I'm going to fall into trouble. So what am I supposed to be doing as an ambassador? What am I supposed to be doing as a messenger? Verse 21, I need to tell people that evil pursues sinners. But to the righteous, good shall be repaid. It's an evil world out there. And if you choose to walk in evilness, you're going to go straight to hell. But if you want to walk in the righteousness of the Lord, you can be saved through Jesus Christ. You can be born again. I need to represent that message. What else do I need to do? Verse 9. Tell them that the light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. If you choose to walk in sin, your light will be put out. But yet, if I choose to, as verse 9 says, let my light be the light of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. He that knew no sin became sin for me. I rejoice. I rejoice. And then verse 25. The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. What do I want to eat? See, here's the thing. This is, this is what we're going to finish on. 
The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be one. If you constantly keep trying to fill your stomach with the things of this world, you're going to be in want. You'll never be satisfied. You have moments of satisfaction, but you'll never be fully satisfied. That relationship is going to work out for you. The marriage isn't, the job isn't, the money isn't, the health isn't. What's really going to satisfy your soul, verse 25, is the righteousness of the Lord. That's what you want to eat. Go with me to Matthew real quick to finish this up. Matthew 5. What would happen if we would take that verse and say, Lord, that's what I want to do. I want to eat to the satisfaction of my soul. Because if I go into what everything else the world has to want me, my stomach will be in want. What's it mean to eat to the satisfaction of my soul? The answer is found in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I hope that you walk out of here today hungering and thirsting for more of the righteousness which Christ gives you. And when you hunger and thirst for that, you will be filled. You will have a divine purpose calling in life. You'll be walking in the fruits of the Spirit, and you'll stop and say, that's where it's at. I've done enough years trying to fulfill myself and always complaining about this and that. What would happen if I just hunger and thirst for righteousness? And just stop and say, you know what, Lord, all that matters is you. I want to pray. I want to seek you. I want to go out there and be a light and a witness for you and trust you're going to lead me and guide me and know that I'm going to be filled when I thirst for hunger and righteousness. Oh, man, that's what it's about. I just encourage you, if you're here today, ask yourself that. Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or am I trying to fill myself with something else? If you are, you will always be in want. Let's learn that and let's learn that now. Worship team, if you come forward for the final song. Hey, let's pray this into our lives. And then you guys are welcome to go back and eat. Um, I'll say...